Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45. I want to read for you um, what I would consider to be one of the more remarkable moments in our Bibles. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to family reunions or whether you avoid them or uh, we've all got a weird relationship there somewhere, um, but uh, family reunions uh, can be, especially if you haven't seen people for a while, they can be a special time. Um, but this family reunion is an act of God. It is a moment of grace beyond um, human ability on, in so many ways. And so I want to read God's word for us this morning and pray, and uh, we'll jump in together here as we wrap up uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 45. And th- this doesn't happen in a moment. This takes years to develop. I'll touch on that later. But, but this is a powerful moment. Genesis chapter 45, we'll read the first 15 verses. God's word says this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed or troubled at his presence. And hear these words of peace. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not ultimately you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, And of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, all his brothers talked with him. What an incredible God. What an incredible reunion. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these words of hope. We bow before you today because we are broken people. 
We are weak and lowly people. Even when we deny it and pretend we're something great, we have so much need. We see so little of what is fully going on in the world. We do see through a glass darkly. But you are the great God over all things. You make no mistakes. Even when we are wronged, you can turn it for good. You have plans that are way beyond our ability to understand. And yet you care for us personally. You care for the people around us. And you care for the world and the people you have made. What a privilege to be your servants. Would you give us a heart to draw near to you? And would you give us a trust when life just doesn't make sense? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're coming to the end of the book of Genesis, and I showed you last week this quick overview, and the book of Genesis really does lay foundational truth for us, doesn't it? We spent a significant amount of time in Genesis 1 through 3. Where did this world come from? Why is it such a mess? What's supposed to be happening in our families? Uh, God's good creation of rest, his plan for our weeks. It, God sets the stage of human history, doesn't he, and tells us how it all began. And then we see the world get messed up, don't we, through, through our sin, which continues to mess up the world. And we see the long-term and lasting effects of the choices that Adam and Eve made, but ultimately the choices that we make too. But then the story starts to unfold of how does this world work now? Given its good creation, its brokenness by sin, what's, what's happening now? And how do people walk in relationship with God? And so we saw Cain and Abel and that story, the descent of Adam's family, how does God feel about sin and deal with it in the story of Noah? And yet there's grace. Why is the world so diverse? In the Tower of Babel, God scatters everything as people try to build their own kingdom. And then God starts to work in this one family. A family of Abraham. A family uh, that we wish walked by more faith. But it starts off with this uh, man of faith. And to his son Isaac, to Jacob. And that ultimately brings us to Joseph. And it's, it's interesting that this last story in the book of Genesis actually answers a couple really big questions for us about how God is working in the world. We talked last week about how life is unpredictable, isn't it? Right? Just when we think things are kind of settling in, then all of a sudden it makes a left turn and something happens and changes a lot of things. And unfortunately, a lot of times when life is unpredictable, what we experience is not good, Right? Uh, that's why when you have an emergency meeting at work, no one goes, oh, this is probably good news. You know, when the teacher at school says, uh, we need to talk at the end of class, no one goes, I'm probably getting a reward, <laughs> right? This is the nature of human life. And we saw in Joseph's life that a number of really catastrophically bad things happens. And the story of Joseph is a story in the extreme. We need to realize that. It's, it has extreme um, depths of problems but it has an extremely good, hopeful place that God takes it. And so last week, we answered the question from God's word, where is, life, where is God when life is bad? There's a great verse in Genesis 39. This is in the middle of Joseph being unjustly accused, you know, sold into slavery, ending up in prison, and, and there's this, this verse that kind of captures where is God. It's Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor 
in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So when life is really bad, we can rest assured that God is not missing something. God has not taken his hands off the steering wheel. God is with us. And his love is reliable. And his grace is at work. But the second half of the story of Joseph actually takes us to another place and asks us this question. Is God really working in the world? Do we have any puzzle people here? Anybody into puzzles? Are any of you like chronic puzzlers? Like you kind of have a puzzle going every time and when you finish the last one, you feel an obligation to start the next one. Anybody like really consistent with the puzzle? Good, that's great. All right. Anybody binge puzzlers? Um, all of a sudden you just kind of go on a puzzling kick. I think COVID did this with a lot of people. Like puzzles, I guess. Um, and you do like three, four, five puzzles in a row and then you probably quit for a few years. Anybody binge puzzlers? All right. Any, uh, any holiday puzzlers out there? Yes, yes, holiday puzzlers. When we go to my in-law's house in Michigan, uh, they always get the card table out, and it's Christmas puzzle time. And whether we're there for Thanksgiving or Christmas, there's always some puzzle that's been chosen, and that creates at least, hopefully, a little peaceful family project um, that we can all work on together and celebrate and enjoy until you realize that you're missing a piece or two right by the very end. The kids have knocked it off the table. One is on the floor. Uh, it's jammed in the seat of a chair, right? We can all relate to this uh, reality of puzzles. Um, but it's not just uh, puzzles that we do. Life can be puzzling, can't it? Um, many of you were so kind to us to uh, bring us a meal during the tough season we went through a few weeks ago. And uh, some people door dash some stuff and all that. And a friend of mine up at Gospel Grace, uh, who's one of the pastors there, actually reached out and asked. And I said, our, our church family has just been so kind. Um, I think we're all set. And he followed up the next week and he was like, I know your church family took care of you last week. Could you use a meal this week? I'm like, sure, that'd be great. So we uh, set something up and he was going to order Olive Garden for us, uh, which is one of our favorites. I don't know why Olive Garden can make fettuccine Alfredo. That is so amazing. Um, you cannot make that at home. It's probably the amount of butter in it or something, uh, but it's tremendous, and it's a family favorite in our house. Uh, we probably pay for it for the next day or two, but it's awesome, and uh, Tim loves it. It's a big thing, and so one of the pastors up there said, hey, I'd love to give you guys a meal. He's a good friend of mine, and he's one of those people that's just like clockwork reliable. Do you have people like that in your life? Like You almost feel bad following up with them because you know they're going to get it done, and that's, that's my friend. And so he asked me what time, and I told him we wanted it at 5 o'clock. And so he said, great, I'll take care of it. And the last time I heard from him was sometime Monday morning. And the Olive Garden dinner was Monday night. So I didn't make any dinner plans. We didn't have a, we didn't have a plan. We didn't have a backup plan. We didn't have any backup for the backup. Just, it's going to happen. So late Monday afternoon, kind of right before 5, I get ready to drive over to Olive Garden. But I haven't heard anything from my friend which is weird. And it's one of those to-go order pickups, so you kind of want a confirmation or an email or my car is the white Ford Expedition sort of thing, you know, that whole deal. So I reach out to him via text. Hey, just check in. I'm sure it's all set, but is there an email or anything like that? Silence. But he's so reliable. I'm like, I'm going. So I drive over to Olive Garden, pull in, park, go into the entryway, and uh, I walk up to the counter. I said, hey, I'm here to pick up a to-go, you know, order. And they said, Who, what's the name? I said, uh, 
Parker, it could be under Matt, it could be under you know, this other guy's name. And they start combing through the computer. They start reading me the names of people's orders. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not Sam. Last name is not, you know, whatever. So I sit down. And I'm starting to be like, this is not working. And so I text my friend again, crickets. And then my brain starts to scramble of what are we going to do for dinner? And how I'm going to explain the disappointment of what's just happened. So I wait there another like 15 or 20 minutes. I check back in, nothing. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're doing McDonald's. Not amazing, but it's just, it's there. Okay. So right around the corner from Olive Garden is McDonald's. So I pull out, kind of sad, but I'm like, something is weird here. Pull out, I go to McDonald's. And I get in the McDonald's line. Now, what's the one thing you're supposed to be assured of at McDonald's? Fast. It just goes. You can't always count on hot fries, although they're wonderful, but you, it's just fast. So I get in the McDonald's line, and I'm kind of discouraged and bummed. And all of a sudden, I, get, I pay at the first window, and I get in between the second window, and the line stops for like 10 minutes. It's unbelievable. This is so wrong. I want to cancel my order, but I can't. And if I do, I don't have any dinner. And just like, <laughs> you want to yell, but that's not going to help anything. Life can be puzzling. By the way, I found out after. Okay. I found out after that my, uh, that my friend lost his phone and forgot the order and left me hanging. Never happens. But for about an hour there, I'm in this weird puzzle that's just not working. And I end up coming home to a disappointed son because, you know, we make it through. But it's, it's difficult for us at times to put together the pieces of the puzzle of life, isn't it? And maybe a couple pieces are coming to view, but it's just not fitting together. And there's no doubt as Joseph sat in prison, approaching his 40th birthday, or 30th birthday, after a decade plus of bad things happening, he has to wonder, what is going on? And haven't we all felt that way? Haven't we all gotten to that place where we've kind of thrown our hands up in the air and said, what in the world? What is going on? And if you turn back with me to Genesis 41, God starts to unfold his work. In Genesis chapter 41, there is a plot twist. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh had a dream. So this has an interesting connection because while in prison, Joseph has interpreted a dream for someone really close to Pharaoh and told him, hey, get me out of here. And the guy forgot him. But now Pharaoh has another dream. Genesis 41 verse 1 says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. They stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh goes, What is going on? The ruler of the world has this disturbing dream, and he actually has another one about ears of corn in the same way. And he's like, somebody needs to tell me what's going on, but none of his helpers can do it. And that's when the bell goes off for the guy who Joseph had interpreted the dream for two plus years ago. And he goes, actually, I know a guy. I know somebody who might be able to help you. And Pharaoh calls Joseph up out of the prison, and Joseph hears the dream Look at verse 14. This is powerful. 
It says, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they, brought him, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Everything up until now has been moving very slowly, very discouragingly for Joseph. They brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Joseph has to be thinking, what is going on? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there was no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. But listen to what Joseph says. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And if you know the rest of the story, Joseph is able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then Joseph actually gives Pharaoh some wisdom. And he says, you should, you should pick somebody who can help lead and, and guide the nation through these years of good and famine. And what does Pharaoh say? I think I got my guy. Imagine this incredible shift where Joseph goes from a forgotten outsider in prison. The, the Jews and the Egyptians didn't eat together. We find out later his family were shepherds. They were kind of like banished to a side part. He had no significance until God made him significant. And that's the first lesson we learn about God's working is this. God is in the work of lifting up the lowly. He's in the place where he takes people who are unimpressive and unknown and he does incredible things with them because it gives him glory. You see, I feel pretty low today, Pastor Matt. There's a number of things going on in my world and I am just, God has humbled me. You know, it's actually a great place to be. James chapter four says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace, he gives help, to the humble. It's good for us when God brings us low. And here is Joseph's life that just seems like it gets worse and worse and worse. And God is actually preparing Joseph to do something powerful in him. Now, listen to me. Joseph becomes second in command. All of Egypt listens to him. I'm not saying that if you humble yourself, God is going to make you vice president, okay? That's not what God's word is saying. But the Bible talks to us over and over again that when we actually stop trying to do everything ourselves and rely on ourselves and think that we're the answer to things, when we actually bow before God and when we really get what Joseph got, that it's not in me, that's when God works. God is lifting up the lowly. Think about the kind of people Jesus loved to use. He picked four fishermen. One tax collector, one Fox News junkie, or, or MSNBC junkie, depending on your position, one zealot, and five guys we barely know. The only reason I know their names is because I've memorized them in a little song. And God took these very average, low people, and he did incredible work for his glory through their lives. Amen. He rescued Mary Magdalene, and the Bible tells us her story, and countless others, 1 Corinthians 1 says that God delights to take the weak things to humble the mighty. God didn't pick Joseph because he was amazing. But God brought him to the place he could use him. One of my heroes is a man named Hudson Taylor that God called and used to reach uh, about, I don't know, 150 years ago uh, to, to share the truth about Jesus through much of inland China that had never been reached. And Hudson Taylor famously said, God was looking for a man weak enough to use and he found me. 
Matthew 23, verse 12 says us, tells us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. We read the story of the Pharisee and the publican, one filled with his own self-righteousness, thankful that he's better than other people. And then we read about a man, a publican, a tax collector, the you know, despised of the earth who just bows before God and says what? God be merciful to me, a sinner. This is why we read Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't this how God begins his work in someone? He begins his work when we will humble ourselves and say, God, I'm a sinner who needs your rescue. I need your help. I need Jesus to take the sin for me that I could never take for myself. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God works. Do you know that God's work with humble people, though, doesn't stop there? If you've trusted in Jesus and you know he's your savior, God continually wants to work through humbling and growing and humbling and growing and humbling and growing. God lifts up the lowly. He loves to meet hurting and humble people right where they are, show them his grace, and change the course of their life. This is God's grace. God is lifting up the lowly. Secondly, go back to Genesis 45. God is healing the broken. Isn't it interesting that in the life of Jesus, God tells so many stories of his healing, of how he reaches to a man born blind, someone paralyzed from birth, how he comes to broken people and heals them. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that God is the great reconciler. Through Jesus, he makes peace. And Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says that Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross. God is healing the broken. We read the first, four, or first three verses of this account in Genesis 45, and you could not help but see the personal nature of this, could you? Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Verse 2 says he wept aloud so that when the Egyptians, so that the Egyptians heard it, the people outside the room, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And in this account, we have some real help for us on how God brings healing and peace to things that are broken. Remember what Matthew 5 said, blessed are the peacemakers. So how do we come to relationships that are broken in a way that restores, that heals, that gives hope? We see, first of all here, that healing is deeply personal. Joseph wept aloud. Now, I want to be really clear. This is not an overnight moment, right? Genesis 42 to 44, if you want to read it, tells a story about how Joseph tests his brothers. He tests them to see if they have a tender heart if they understand what they did to him in the past and have genuinely changed. Then he tests them to see if they've grown. He does a number of things, you know, to, to put them to the test. And then he tests them in what they would do in a similar circumstance. He actually puts his brother Benjamin in a risky situation and sees if his brothers will kind of cut bait and make him pay for it. And in those situations, his brothers... Uh, follow and they, they respond in a way that encourages Joseph, that brings him to this moment. But notice that this comes from his heart. It's been somewhere between 20 and 25 years since the original wrong. 
And Joseph is ready for that, that relationship to be restored. And I don't want us to miss this this morning. Healing is much more than an intellectual exercise. It's much more than just a transaction. For Joseph and his brothers to be restored, it has to come from Joseph's heart. And it's just written all over this story that Joseph's heart is open to his brothers. He's willing to be restored. And then he offers them healing. Healing is powerfully offered. It's a personal thing, but look at how Joseph offers healing. Look at verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. There's actually a few phrases that are repeated through this account. And one of them is this idea of coming near. We see it in verse four. Look down at verse 10. He says to them, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. Look at verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. There's this pull towards being back together, an offer of closeness. Joseph welcomes his brothers back into his life. And these are powerful words, especially when they come from the person who has experienced the evil and been sinned against, aren't they? Right? Even though his brothers have sold him, they've done awful things to him, it would be very hard for them to mend the relationship, wouldn't it? But Joseph, the one who has been hurt, the one who has been harmed, has a wide open door to powerfully ask for the relationship to be restored. You can't miss the connection that these verses have to Jesus, can you? Isn't it amazing that Jesus took our sins on the cross and then he's the one who says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, what? I will come into him and have a relationship with him. See, Jesus isn't waiting for us to get it all figured out or to prove to him that we deserve it. He's actually standing and knocking. He's actually saying to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. But he's the one who's been harmed. He's the one who suffered for us. He's the one who carried the weight. And yet he's the one saying, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the living water that we sang about. He's the one saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's the one who looks at a thief next to him and says, Today, you will be with me in paradise an offer of real closeness. But notice in this healing, there's an offer based on God's purposes. Look at verse five. Joseph says to them, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Joseph doesn't sugarcoat what his brothers have done to him. He doesn't sugarcoat the wrong. He doesn't dismiss it. But he also isn't obsessed and dwelling in it. He's moving forward. Because he's confident, not in them, not in their motives, not in their choices, but he's confident in God's purposes. God sent me, he says in verse 5, look at seven, verse 7, and God sent me before you. Look at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The basis for restoration and healing in relationships that have been broken is not based solely on the people involved. It's actually based upon a deep belief 
that there's a God who's ultimately on the throne, who's ultimately in control, who's ultimately at work. And when we have a deep belief in the rule and reign and purposes of God in all things, then we can grant people healing that would otherwise be impossible. And so Joseph does that because he believes in the purposes of God. But it's also an offer with a future promise. Did you feel the urgency in Joseph's words? He's like, can we get this done? Can you hurry? <laughs> don't, don't delay. Tell dad. Can you imagine where that comes from? You can, can't you? 20 or 25 years of life apart. And Joseph's heart is like, soon, fast, don't stop, do it quick. I'm sure he grieved often for what was lost. But too much time together had already gone. And he wanted to be back together with his father and his brothers and their kids and grandkids and everybody. But Joseph says more than that. He says, not only will we be together, I will provide Verse 10, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds. Bring it all, all that you have. Verse 11, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. The situation was such that the whole world was dying in this famine. But these brothers, unbeknownst to them, had an incredible connection to the person who was helping the world. And he's like, come on, come be with me. Let's be together. You'll be taken care of. I will provide. It's important in these situations to focus on what will happen next. It's not good or healthy to ignore the past. But it can also be detrimental to be overly focused on and obsessed in the past. Remember what Paul said? I forget what's behind me. I press forward to what's ahead. Jesus healed people, and they said, go your way and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, let's sit down and talk about the last 20 years. He said, time to go forward. Listen, our lives are fleeting, people. You could talk to some of the people who have a few more years than I do in this room, and you know what they'll tell you? It flies by. And God is in the work of healing and restoring relationships. It's an incredible thing to get to be a part of. 1 Corinthians 5 says that God is a reconciler, and then he passes on that work to us to get to help people be reconciled to him and healed, reconciled to each other. It's a privilege of being part of God's work. Now, every situation is different. They involve different levels of hurt, different levels of brokenness, different responses, and there are relationships that God doesn't heal this side of eternity. I think we need to acknowledge that. But it ought to be our hope and our optimistic joy to be part of healing where it's possible because that's a work that God is in. Lastly, God is healing the broken. God is saving the world. What was God's ultimate purpose in the life of Joseph? Verse 7, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. He says it a couple times here that God had sent him to preserve life, to revive people who were on a, on a desperate track without help. And isn't that all of us without Jesus? That if God doesn't intervene and show us his grace, we're on a track that will end badly. God is at work throughout the world. Turn to Genesis 50. 
We'll finish here. Turn to Genesis 50. Joseph's family does come to Egypt. They enjoy an incredible season of prosperity and restoration. It's an incredible story. But if we preach it all, we'd be here till late afternoon. I'm not going to do that to you. But then Joseph's father dies, and his brothers actually are a little fearful that it's going to end badly for them, that he's finally going to take revenge. He's finally going to put them in their place. He's finally going to be angry with them. And so they're like, please forgive us. They're, they're worried. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Listen, we can be confident this morning that whether or not the puzzle's all fitting together for us, God is at work individually. He's at work personally. There's a great promise in Philippians 1, if you've trusted Jesus, that the God who's begun a good work in you will continue it until Jesus comes back. Can I, can I tell you this morning, it's no accident that you're here at Gospel Hope today. It's no accident that we are where we are in the story of Joseph. It's no accident that, that God's word is being opened for all of us. There's a heart work that God wants to do in me and you and every single person sitting in this room. God is working personally. But beyond that, God is at work collectively. See, this life is not an island where we live individually. God is at work in our families, in our friends, in our workplaces, in all the direct relationships with which we cross paths. None of that is an accident. But even bigger than that, God is at work globally. Do you ever think about how small a piece you are on planet Earth? But do you ever think about all the places that your life touches and the work that God is doing to rescue and save through Jesus around the world? I just thought about a few areas this morning. I thought about the impact of a person's family. I have three brothers, and we're spread out all across the country. And they have kids, right? And we have a son. And this family tree thing starts to fan out. And who knows what parts of the world all our lives touch. I have friends that I went to college with who are in England, who are in Indonesia. God is doing something way bigger. And he was through the life of Joseph. I thought a little bit about my friends. I even thought about our finances. As a church, we give each Sunday, and part of that is to go help God's work around the world. And, and it's like every little dollar spreads out to who knows where. Who knows who it reaches? Who knows who it touches? God is doing a global work. Revelation tells us that one day we're going to stand before God, and it's not going to be a largely like Caucasian gathering. I'm just help us with that. It's going to be a kaleidoscope of the world because God is at work. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation, it's global. And he sent Joseph ahead of time, not the way Joseph would have picked. Joseph would have been like, hey, how about I get to Egypt this way? How about, how about I have a bad experience and end up in prison? How about it goes like this? But God is in the, behind the scenes putting the whole puzzle together. You and I are playing checkers with our life and we don't even know where the next move is supposed to go. And God is playing like 20-dimensional chess. 
And he's taking his word this morning. He's like, bam, 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 bam. And he's working in you and your family. And, and he's got you in your workplace where he is. And he has you run into people in the store the way you are. And God is doing this really, really big thing. Isn't that cool? We get a little microcosm of this every summer. We get plant campers who come here. It's awesome. They get to be a part of town days with us and reach out into our community and pass out water bottles and, and serve at breakfast and help with the 5K and do these booths. And they just get to serve and, and talk about Jesus with people and be, be salt and light in this community. And do you know what happens every summer? You have teenagers who are like, we could do this. And they start to think about their community and their opportunity and the place where God has them and, and what water bottles look like for them and what serving and being salt and light and, and letting their light so shine before men, like how that looks right where they are. And you know what happens? God impacts the world through our faithful service to him right here. You will never know the conversations you've had about Jesus that play out decades from now in a place you'll never hear about. The beauty of the story of Joseph is we get, to, we get to watch the movie. We get to see it play out. But it's no different in our lives. God is at work in you, all around you, and to the ends of the earth. So a really simple question. Whether we can see it or not, God is working. You say, I'm not convinced about that. Well, maybe you should read the story of Joseph again this week from chapter 37 to 50. Read the whole thing. Decide which parts I left out that I should have included. What part is really powerful in your life? But here's the reality. In Matt Parker's life, in Tim Adams' life, right? In Linda Adams' life, in Lucy Wise's life, God is working. So where are you? Where am I? Are we in a humble place? where we are bowing before God and in a place where he can use us? Where are those relationships in your world that are broken? We all have them. And there's a place for you to be an agent of peace with an open heart and God's work and humility and offer and kindness to be a picture of what God has done through Jesus. And can we have great confidence that as God moves the puzzle pieces of life, you can trust him? You say, I don't see it right now. Welcome to the club. There's none of us who has our own lives figured out tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But the book of Genesis tells us God's in charge of the story. He's making promises and keeping them. He's, he's operating in steadfast love and grace. He's at work. Say, it's too slow for me. Hmm. Hmm. It's not the way I want it to be. Hmm. None of us would be a better God than God. I just want to tell you that. God is at work. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the stories of your word that echo into our lives so powerfully. There's so much we can't figure out. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much bad and hurt in this world that's very real, but you are great and good and you're working for your glory and for us. It's an incredibly humbling thing. God, we confess this morning that we don't want to be low. We don't want to view ourselves as poor or needy or weak. But you've told us while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. You've told us that it's good for us to be brought low 
You've told us that you're the healer. You're the savior. You're the one transforming and changing lives. Lord, I pray for each person in here that wherever they are, whatever the situation of their life, they would bow before you. They would humble themselves and come to you. But that we would also live with great confidence that you are on the throne working out your purposes and your plans and your promises. You have never failed us yet. We are just nobodies, but help us to be enlisted in your work wherever you've called us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.